If you met Jesus in your night's sleep tonight and he offered you a position of authority or influence, which would you take? Billy Graham um, was offered by at least two American presidents positions of authority, significant positions of influence that would have set him at the centre of American policy at home and overseas in a number of areas and he turned them down. And yet he lived his life as an evangelist with no position of authority throughout his 99 years and at the same time was given incredible access by 13 American presidents, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and yes, Donald J. Trump. And in his lifetime, it is estimated that he was heard by over 2.2 billion people. Billy Graham had no authority, but incredible influence. So which would you choose if Jesus gave you the option? In the manifesto which Jesus sets out uh, in that address we call the Sermon on the Mount, it would appear that a position of influence is what he wants for his followers rather than a position of authority. And uh, we've been starting to take a look at that manifesto in Central on Sunday afternoons. And uh, we come to the second section of it today in which Jesus characterises the kind of life we are called to live and it's characterised largely as a life of influence. Let me show how he does this. In the passage he points out that we are called to be, first of all, flavourers. Now I realise that's not a word I'm going to be giving you several non-words today. Um, but the first one is this, that Jesus calls us to be flavorers. In Matthew 5.13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. So what does that mean? Well, we're all really conscious of the fact that salt is a preservative, especially in a previous generation when there were no fridges or other ways by which to keep food cold and maintain it over a long period of time. Salt was the solution. Um, during our holiday in Donegal a few weeks ago, uh, we went to visit the Famine Village, which is really a very interesting experience, although quite honestly, you haven't really missed anything if you haven't been. Um, but when you go in there at the start of the tour, you're in a small clutch of cottages, and uh, your tour guide is a man, middle-aged man now, who grew up in one of those houses. It was his childhood home. Uh, and he talks quite a lot about the life uh, which he spent there and uh, about the food that they ate and uh, the habits that they had and how they kept the house warm and, and, and how they fed themselves and so on. And I happened to notice as we came in through the door to the cottage for the first part of his lecture that there was a basin sitting on a table just beside the door in which there appeared to be what was the remains of several decaying fish, um, which... I assumed not to be real because there was no smell from them. So during the course of his lecture, he pointed to the basin and got one of the younger children there to carry it over to him. And in the basin, there were indeed fish, but they, they were real fish. They had been caught uh, in the month of February and they had been uh, in salt ever since. 
and uh, he claimed they were edible. Personally, I would have struggled to eat them, but he claimed they were edible, and there was no smell of decomposition or decay from the fish whatsoever. The salt in which they had been immersed had kept them, had preserved them. And when we hear Jesus say, you are the salt of the world, it's tempting to think that Jesus means that, uh, that Jesus is talking about uh, us as some form of preservative in the midst of a decaying society. But salt has another quality. And it's a more important quality nowadays in the days of fridges when we have options of the means to keep food fresh. And the other thing about salt is that salt seasons. And it's this quality that Eugene Peterson highlights in the message translation of these verses. Let me tell you why you are here, he says. You're here to be the salt seasoning that brings out the God flavours of this earth. Salt flavours food. Now, we have spent the last number of years uh, in our country gradually removing all the salt from food. So breakfast cereals, Marks and Spencer's ready meals, pizza, all of these things have become relatively tasteless as they have taken all the salt out of them because we were being told it's bad for our health. And I did ironically notice an article in The Guardian last week uh, which detailed a new piece of research that suggests that salt in the levels in which it is consumed in our society are not in fact dangerous to health at all. In fact, probably the only culture on the planet at the moment in which the levels of salt are dangerous is China. So if you don't plan to live in China, your salt intake is probably okay. We love salt because it flavours, it seasons food. And I want to suggest that that's exactly what Jesus had in mind. His picture of us as the salt of the earth is of us as flavourers rather than preservers. Problem is that most people seem to have understood Jesus to mean the latter, that we're meant to be preservers. Over the years of the troubles, on countless occasions, I heard people say how much worse things would have been had it not been for the Christian influence in society all around us. I'm not denying that there may be an element of truth in that, but for the most part what that actually meant was that the church became a chaplaincy service to the aspirations and culture of their tribe, when what we really needed was a people who stood out like a distinctive flavour in food. Jesus says in Matthew 5, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. That verse makes it clear that we are meant to be salty. This passage is a kingdom manifesto and Jesus is saying we are to be the flavour of the kingdom of God, not chaplains to the kingdom of the world. You are the salt of the earth. We are called to be flavourers, the seasoning, the salty, distinctive taste of something different. But then he says also we are to be glorifiers. He says you are the light of the world. What does that mean? Well, we tend to think that it means that Jesus wants everyone to see us. 
And in some ways, what he goes on to say seems to confirm that. Jesus says, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives life to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. Jesus wants us to be seen. And there are some lights that are meant to be seen. If you take a walk uh, along the pathway that runs from Crawfordsburn into Bangor, um, and if you look offshore, as you walk, the nearer you get to to Bangor, you you will notice Mew Island. Uh, And on that island is a large lighthouse that replaced uh, the lighthouse that used to mark those rocks, which was on one of the Copeland Islands. And uh, that light is there to be seen so that ships can avoid the treacherous rocks that surround it and, and they would be destroyed if they, uh, if they went aground on them. And that's a light that is meant to be seen. And even though we often go to that image when we think about this expression that we are to be the light of the world, I don't think that's the one Jesus had in mind. I know that Jesus never saw a super trooper And I'm not now talking about a member of the pop group ABBA. Super Trooper is a follow spotlight. Originally manufactured in Omaha in 1956, it had a high-intensity carbon arc lamp. I have no idea what that is, but apparently that original lamp was subsequently replaced with a Xeon lamp, which is rather similar to the ones that you have in some high-priced motor cars. And that follow spotlight, that super trooper, casts a snow white light which picks a performer out from the ambient light on stage. So even though the stage is lit by many floodlights and colours, the super trooper picks out a key individual with this pure white light and makes them stand out and be seen against the background of everything else that's going on. So the key thing about a super trooper is not the light itself, but on whom it falls and whom it follows. And if Jesus had known about a super trooper, that's the name of the light he would have used in this verse. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Our lifestyle is a super trooper which falls on and follows the presence of the Father. We light the world by glorifying the Father. Here's how Eugene Peterson puts it. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. Isn't that exactly who our Father is? We only get to be part of this great adventure of the Christian faith because he opened his home to us. And we only get to share what we have experienced because he was generous to us in the gift of his Son and the forgiveness and grace and indwelling power of a spirit that follows on that generosity. And so if we keep open house and live generous lives, that's exactly who our Father is. So when they see us, 
they see the Father. We are glorifiers. People don't need to see what they expect. They don't need to see religious good living people doing what they expect religious good living people to do. They need to see this generous Father in heaven in our lives here on earth. We are called to be glorifiers. People, the nature of whose light is not the light itself, but on whom the light falls and whom the light follows, the generous Father in heaven. Lastly, we are called to be fulfillers. Fulfillers. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. There's a lot of tough stuff in the book we call the Old Testament. That's the book Jesus calls the Law and the Prophets. And disciples look at the beautiful life of Jesus and wonder, how does he relate to all this stuff in the Old Testament? In the first instance, Jesus says something important about that. He says, all of it, all of it is significant. Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And that's a pretty comprehensive statement. And what that tells us is we are not to play down the scriptures, but to take seriously what they say, whether the Old Testament or whether the scriptures which Jesus didn't have access to because they weren't yet written, the scriptures we now call the New Testament. We are, we are not to play these things down, but take them seriously. We are not to be critical of the scribes and Pharisees because they take the scriptures seriously, but because they don't take them seriously enough. Jesus says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What, what does that mean, to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Does that mean more laws, more judgmentalism, more cold, hard hearts in the face of a sinful world full of broken people? Well, when you hear the church of our day, you would sometimes think that's exactly what it means. I remember previous congregation working with a, a family, a single mum who had three children, a son and two daughters, and she was left to rear them on her own. And uh, so we were providing some help for her through the Presbyterian Orphan Society. And I remember calling with her regularly with the, the grant and trying to help out in practical ways and taking her daughters to church with us on a Sunday. And uh, one year when I was on holiday, I, I couldn't deliver the, the, the gift myself. So I asked one of the leaders in the church if he would do it for me while I was away. And, and he did. And uh, when I came back, I said, how did it go? And he told me that he got the, the, the gift delivered and so on. And then he said, you know, I don't know why we're supporting people like that. Basically, they got themselves into the situation that they're in. And in some ways, that's what people expect of the church. They expect us to judge rather than to look beyond the damage and brokenness of this person's life to see if there's some way in which we can come with those open, generous hearts of the Father to make a difference. A righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees is not more judgmental, more laws, more rules and regulations. So what is it then? Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Fulfillment is the answer, but what does it mean? 
Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, there's a series of stories. One of them where Jesus walks in the harvest fields with his disciples on the Sabbath. And uh, they start to rub some ears of corn together and, and uh, then to eat the flour, which is kind of ground in their hands. And, uh, and then he enters the synagogue where a man with a withered hand, his hand has not been able to be used for years, whether it was an accident at work or something like that. But it has completely changed and altered and impoverished his life. And Jesus calls him out and Jesus heals him there and then on the spot. Now he gets into trouble with this because the scribes and Pharisees believe he has broken the Sabbath regulations because on the one hand to uh, uh, gather heads of corn and rub them between your fingers is of course harvesting and food preparation, both of which were banned on the Sabbath and so the disciples by behaving in this way were, were breaking the Sabbath legislation. And then Jesus by calling this man out of the assembly and healing him is also carrying out activities and events which were banned on the Sabbath day. So they, they have become Sabbath breakers. And when they question Jesus about this, it's interesting what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say that this is exceptional behaviour because of who he is and he's well within his rights to do as he pleases because of who he is. It's not what Jesus says at all. What Jesus says is that the reason why he is perfectly okay with these behaviours that have annoyed the scribes and Pharisees is because this is what the Sabbath is for. This was the purpose for which it was given. It's not the scriptures per se that are important, but what the scriptures are for. What is the righteousness which exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? Jesus says to the same group of people in John 5, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You see what Jesus is saying? The, the key thing here is to recognise what the scriptures are for. The Pharisees and scribes knew them back to front. They knew them better than you and I ever will. But that didn't mean to say that they knew what they were for. And so they never fulfilled them. They are there to bring us and others to Christ to become the fulfillment of their composition. And my favourite piece of classical music is Sergei Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto in C minor. Now, I can't play it. But if I practised for a long, long time, maybe over many years, perhaps more years than I have left in my life to live. But if I practiced for a really long time and studied very, very hard, it is possible that I might just come to the point where I could play all the right notes in all the right order, in all the right order and be able to, uh, to do it as a performance. And, and if I could do that, if I, if I could put in the work and uh, eventually prepare myself so that I could sit down at the keyboard and play this great piano concerto from beginning to end, would I have entered into the purpose why Rachmaninoff wrote it in the first place? I think it is probably no. Because Rachmaninoff didn't write the second concerto so that someone could learn to play all the right notes in all the right places. He wrote it so that it would bring joy. And I am virtually certain that no matter how long I practiced and how much effort I put into it, 
I might be able to mechanically perform that concerto, but I almost certainly could not play it as he intended. I could not cause that concerto to have the impact on people's lives for which its author wrote it in the first place. It's not getting all the right notes in the right order. It's playing the music. It's bringing the joy. And the scriptures are there to bring us life in Christ. That's what they're for. And by the time I finish this message today, the key question is not, have you understood it better? Have you got a clearer grasp of what the words mean and why Jesus used certain expressions over others and and, and what is their historical context and how might we analyse all these things and you go away with all this knowledge? That is not what this is about. The key question is not, have I enabled you to understand the passage better? The question is, are you now more alive in Christ? Because I, like you, am called to be a fulfiller. That in this interaction between preacher and people, the scripture is fulfilled. What it was written for takes place among us now. Jesus calls us to influence he calls us to be flavorers, glorifiers, fulfillers. He calls us to be the kind of people that as we live our lives, you sense the taste of the Holy Spirit, the way your lips taste of salt from being in the sea. That as we live our lives, we glorify the generosity of the Father by a generous and open lifestyle. That as we live our lives, we fulfill the purpose of everything by introducing everyone to Jesus. We are flavorers, glorifiers and fulfillers. I had a friend who was in ministry and he was quite a radical minister in his day. I often wondered what it was like to be in the leadership team in his church and how he had managed to turn around a hugely conservative congregation and group of leaders uh, to follow a really radical lead at a key point in time in our history as a people in Northern Ireland. Uh, and I often wondered what, how hard it had been and what it was like in the background, but never really the opportunity to talk about it. And then when I came to Carn Money, I discovered that one of his elders, one of the folks who was on the leadership team of this church, was now an older man living in our area and coming to our lunch club every week. And I thought this was my opportunity to find out. So I had lunch with him a couple of days and finally summoned up the courage to ask him about my friend. Say, what was it like to be with him in the Kirk session of your congregation? I should say that this elderly gentleman was an old-fashioned style Presbyterian, highly conservative in his dress and in his outlook on many things. And I, I assumed in my heart that in lots of ways, my friend who was the minister would, would, would have been anathema to him and a really difficult ask. Um, so I didn't really know what he would say when I said to him, well, what was it like to, to serve with, with my friend? And he thought for a moment and then this is what he said. Um, he said, you know, somehow or another when you were with him, you felt closer to Christ. It remains the highest tribute I think I've ever heard a human being paid. 
because there was somebody whose life was lived in a particular way so that he had become a flavorer, a glorifier and a fulfiller. Being with him enables you to taste salt like as if you'd been swimming in the sea two or three hours earlier. Jesus calls us to be influencers, people who for the most part probably won't have authority or position in our world. But through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, as we live the manifesto of the kingdom, we become powerful influencers as flavorers, glorifiers and fulfillers. May God make us all people like that.